It's been about 34 years ago that I used to make attempts to work out. Recently, I started on that track again. I've discovered that there's a huge difference in working out at 56 years of age than you were in your 20s. But one thing is still the same. There are three things involved in working out. First, you have a process. You know, people tell you you work out these muscle groups on these days and the other muscle groups on the other days. Then you need a purpose. For me, you can rest assured it's just to increase a little bit of health, maybe so that my muscles don't fall to the ground just yet. There's a purpose in why people work out. And then there's a pathway. You actually get to the workout room, to the equipment, and you start actually exercising and working out. Now, serious people call this bodybuilding. And that's what I'm calling my sermon this morning. Bodybuilding. Edifying the body of Christ. Edify means to build, and the body is the church. So this is a kind of bodybuilding you should be highly interested in. You should be deeply concerned about. Because God in Christ is deeply concerned about His body, which is the church, and its edification or its building. In the passages that we read, beginning in verse 11, in four passages, Paul will use words that speak of building and growth. The first one, verse 12, edifying the body. Then he would say in verse 13, unto a perfect man, according to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that speaks of rising or growing to maturity. Then he would say, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up into Christ in all things. And then he would say, the body increases as it edifies itself in love. To increase is to grow and to edify is to build up. So just in a short number of passages, Paul is deeply concerned about the church's bodybuilding. We could call it discipleship. We could call it growth. But all this is conveyed in these words where Paul speaks of edification. And that's our outline. The process, the purpose of it, and then the pathway. And I hope to spend most of my time there on the pathway. How does, how does this work itself out in the body called the church? And we may be a bit surprised at the primary pathway that Paul is speaking about here. Really, the primary pathway of how we get there may be somewhat unexpected. Something we know, but maybe not thinking of as really the primary way to get there. But first, let's connect the dots with last Sunday. We talked about the great plan of God, the purpose of God in Ephesians chapter 1. And we see this again in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says in verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave, gave gifts unto men. Why did he ascend? Three reasons. First, to lead captivity captive, which means he, he captivated. He took captive and captivated those in rebellion. Paul quotes from Psalm 68, which speaks of a great king, a monarch, that marches from the Exodus to Sinai, and kings flee at his presence, and then he marches to Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And of course, the typology of Mount Zion or Jerusalem in the Old Testament is the church in the new. So the king has ascended. He has led captivity captive. He's rescued the rebellious. He's redeemed them. He's forgiven them. He's taken a sinner vain and wild and made him as a little child. He subdued his feet, his will, and binds and guides his feet. And he leads him to the mercy seat, as the songwriter expresses it. So he ascended to capture rebellious people and bring them to his mercy seat. He captivates us with his glory. He has shined in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person, in the face of Christ. We've been captured by divine grace. Secondly, to give gifts unto men. When he ascended on high, the purpose was redemption as he was crucified, buried, and raised up. To the throne of God. But then secondly, he gives gifts unto men. Psalm 68 says he receives gifts even for the rebellious that God may dwell among them. Do we understand how significant that wording is? Why did he give you gifts? He received them from God the Father and then he disperses them to the rebellious that he's rescued. Why? That God 
may dwell in this bodybuilding program. It's a spiritual bodybuilding, isn't it? That the Spirit may take the body, the church, and as Ephesians 2 says, it may be a holy habitation for God, a dwelling place. That's significant. That's massive. That's huge. That's life life transforming right there. But then thirdly, he says it this way. Verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. Why? That he might fill all things. Now the word ascend means to go up. You and I one day, Lord willing, will go up as it relates to heaven. But nobody here came down. You didn't descend. This speaks of the deity of Christ. The one that ascended first descended. He left His throne in glory. Why did He descend? To die the death of deaths. Why did He ascend? That He might fill all things. Now that connects the dots to last week, doesn't it? The word fill means to diffuse. And we learned last week that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that at the completion of all ages past, the Mosaic Age, the ages of kings and empires and rulers, brought to their end at the coming of Christ when He established His kingdom, that now in the church age, right here, right now, in this body, in all local assemblies on the planet, Christ is showing Himself supreme, and He's diffusing the aroma of His glory and His greatness through you. Paul would say that on more than one occasion. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. The fullness of Him that is filling all in all, that is His body. He's diffusing the aroma of His glory. Ephesians 3, 10, to the intent that now unto principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church. That's instrumentation through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. We are to be a showcase for the wisdom of God to the galaxies And on this earth. And then Paul references it in parenthesis in our text. That he might fill all things. Why did he give you a gift? Why did he rescue you? Why did he redeem you? Why did he bring you into a body? So that he might diffuse the aroma of his greatness, his glory, his supremacy through weak, bankrupt, undone sinners. And he gave, verse 11. Now that sets the context, doesn't it? So our first application is, do we understand the magnitude of what we're involved in by the grace of God? That he would reveal his plan to us. As he revealed it to the holy apostles and prophets. The revelation of the mystery. Ephesians 1.9 and Ephesians 3. Christ among the Gentiles. He's calling out a people among the nations from every people group, every color, every tribe and gathering them in to the church. Why? To fill all things. And so this gives massive significance to your life. This gives you purpose in the mundane activities of being the insignificant people. I'm sorry that we really are. Do you know how insignificant your life is in relation to world events? Nobody even knows who you are. Except for Christ, the Son of the living God. He has called you in one hope of His calling, Ephesians 4, to be part of a body where this is played out in the daily routine life of being a mother, a dad, a worker, a church member, a husband, a wife, a child. If we lose sight of this, everything that follows this text is missed. It's gone. It's not played out in the life of the church. So connecting those dots then, let's first look at the process. After saying that He might fill all things, He ascended far above all heavens, so that He might fill all things... And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors, teachers. And the original language, that's not two separate offices, but one. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now here's the process. Preaching, perfecting, ministry, edifying. 
There it is. What are we doing? Preaching, perfecting, ministry, edifying the body. There's our body bone. This is the process. Here are the muscle groups we're, we're seeking to work out here in our illustration. So the apostles and prophets are those foundational gifts by which the church is being built. Ephesians 2.20 The holy apostles and prophets were revealed the mystery that was hidden in ages past. Ephesians 3 and about the fifth verse. It was hidden. It was not revealed. But now it's been revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets. And they've revealed it to you. How? Through the Word of God. They've pinned God's words, God's plan, and God's purposes on the pages of Scripture. Paul said that when you read what he wrote, you may understand the mystery he has of the knowledge of Christ. It's that mystery then that's preached. It's that word that then the evangelist and pastor teacher takes to minister to the body of Christ. Now John Stott uses... The metaphors or the illustration of an obstetrician and a pediatrician. The evangelist is like an obstetrician. They're concerned with birth. We would call that conversion, right? Paul saw himself as an obstetrician to the churches at Galatia when he said in Galatians chapter 4, O little children, whom I travail in birth again till now, till Christ be formed in you. Now, Paul was concerned because they had believed a false gospel. So he was concerned as an obstetrician, as an evangelist and an apostle. He likely had multiple gifts. Had he delivered a stillbirth or a live birth? He wasn't sure. So he goes back in the delivery room and preaches the gospel for a conversion where he sees Christ being shaped and formed and molded in the life of the churches of Galatia. So an evangelist is kind of like that. They're <clears throat> concerned with conversions. That, that's where they focus their work. But the pastor teacher is more like a pediatrician. You know, what are you feeding that child? Is he growing? How's his health? This is what you need to feed. This is how you need to care. This is what you need to do. So the pastor teacher now is called a shepherd. A bishop, an elder, all these are interchangeable words that Paul uses in Peter. Now when Paul uses the noun form, he calls it poimain, which is shepherd. When he uses the verb form, it's poimaino, which is feed. Feed, which tells us something about this process. So he would say to the church at Ephesus, or the elders, the very elders that he's addressing and the church he's addressing in this book, in Acts 20 and 28, he would say, Take heed unto yourselves and all the flock of God, over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to poimino, to feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. So there's nourishing, there's feeding, there's caring, there's overseeing, there's watching over the souls of the people of God. And what does he feed with? Well, verse 27 says, I have not shunned to declare all the counsel of God. And then when he commended those elders, he commended them to the word of grace, which is able to build you up, edify, bodybuilding. So one of the steps in the process of getting to the purpose and the pathway is preaching the word, not preaching opinions, not preaching stories. Preaching the Word. And the Word does what? It reproves, it rebukes, and it exhorts. It encourages, it comforts, it exposes. It shows us what is out of sync in our hearts with God's Word. Our wills, our affections, our emotions, our actions. It exposes what is out of sync. And then makes corrections so that we can become in sync again and again. In this process of bodybuilding. Paul would say that that's what the word of God is about. In 2 Timothy 3.16 you remember. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine. For reproof. For correction. For instruction in righteousness. Okay. Reproof is conviction. Right? The word of God brings about a conviction. 
as it exposes something about us. It convicts us as sinners. It shows us where we may have guilt. It shows us where our emotions, our thoughts have been wrong. But then it corrects. The compound word there is the word inside that compound is orthosis, which we get the word orthopedics, which means to straighten bones. Correct. So the Word of God doesn't leave you convicted. It then straightens you up again. It corrects. Here's a process. And then it trains you in righteousness. See? This is what preaching is designed to do. This is the process of bodybuilding. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That he's equipped. Which brings us to the next word in this process. Verse 12. These speaking gifts then do what? What's the purpose? What's the process? For the perfecting of the saints. Perfection here is perfection in the sense of equipping someone for a task. Some translations use the word equip. That's the meaning of the word. The root word here has many different nuances that I think captures what Paul is saying here. When we come to preaching to be equipped, the other nuances would be mending, repairing, restoring, completing, arranging, adjusting, strengthening. Do you ever need that? Do you need mending? Do you need restoration? Do you need to be repaired? Spiritually. So preaching in this process is designed for the equipping of the saints. So that the saints can then do something. Now right now you know that NATO countries are seeking to equip the Ukrainians with military equipment to defend themselves. Now the aim is not that the NATO countries would supply them with weapons so that the NATO countries could defend Ukraine. It's not the aim. It's so that they would be equipped to maybe defend against the great powerful Russian military. Likewise, the aim of the speaking gifts in equipping the saints is not for the speaking gifts to do something here. It's for the work of the ministry. That's why you're being equipped in bodybuilding. That's one of the aims of preaching. For the work of the ministry. In the original language, the definite article is not there. It can be supplied. It's the work of ministry. Sometimes we take the ministry to be the ministry as office. But it's ministry. It's Serving. It's something that you do. Now here I want to insert a spoiler alert. Those don't bother me. You know, you can tell me the end of a book and what's going to happen and I'm totally okay. I'll enjoy the book just as much. I'll probably forget that you told me what was at the end of the book. But this spoiler alert here is to start focusing our attention in on really what is the ministry. The ministry is not primarily good works. Paul covered that in chapter 2, didn't he? By grace, through faith, you're being saved. Not of of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus unto good works. Good works are a revelation of the glory of God, Matthew 5.16. Good works reveal something about God, that He's sustaining you. And His grace is sufficient for you. And you're going out to people in ministry of good works. But in this context, the primary way of bodybuilding is good words. Good words. Where Paul is going here is speaking the truth in love. That's what builds the body. Good deeds can build, but not like your words. Your words have the power to build and to destroy. Relationships. Churches, friendships, good deeds reveal Christ, but with a good deed you bring what? A good word. 
Paul's main focus here as we go to the pathway is our speech to one another. In our marriages, in our families, in our church. That has the potential of great good when we see what God is saying here as it relates to the great purpose of Christ filling all things with the supremacy of His glory. Or it has great potential for great harm and devastation. Now we, we know that in our own experience, don't we? Who here has never said a word that didn't hurt, destroy, tear down in some way? Right? So there's my spoiler alert because I want to I I keep you focused on where this is going. He's going to ministry of the word to one another as we speak it. In two ways that are inseparable, truth and love. One without the other is no good. And we'll hope to show that soon. So, he's equipping us through preaching of his word so that we may do the work of ministry or serving. And primarily that's going to be with our words. And then thirdly in the process is for edifying. See, your words, when you understand your words belong to Christ who redeems you. Your words are for His purposes, His agenda, not your own. Then you can use your words as we grow there, as we grow together, to do what? Body building. Body building. Are your words serving the purpose of Christ? Are you making progress in speaking truth in a way that's love, so that in Christian relationships in general, but more specifically, Paul says, the body, it's being slowly but surely built up and built up unto the edifying itself in love, in love. All right, what's the purpose? Where is this edifying going? Verse 13, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there are four prepositional phrases here. The first two are subordinate to the third one, and the fourth one gives us the standard for the third one, which is unto a perfect man. So the first two again are subordinate to arriving at the place of a mature man. The fourth one is the measure, it's the standard that tells us how we're doing. All right, so let's look at those. Till we all come, that, that's a verb that means we should be attaining. Remember Paul said, I do not count myself to have attained, and neither should we this side of heaven, right? We don't ever attain, but we are attaining, we're coming to this purpose of bodybuilding. Till we come to the unity of the faith, the oneness of the faith. Now, perhaps the best way to describe oneness here is by its counterpart. The counterpart of unity is everybody doing their own thing. Right? Instead of a unity of purpose, a unity. Under God's plan, what God is after, His name hallowed, His kingdom come, His will be done. Disunity means it's your name, it's about your kingdom, and it's about what you want out of life. Will just means your choice, your pleasure, your desire. When everybody's living according to their own agenda instead of God's, This purpose is not realized in the church. So we have to abandon our own personal pursuits, our own agendas. Because when we are living life in our own agenda, tell me what happens to my speech. I'm tearing you down. Because you're not on board with my agenda. Wife, husband, children. You're messing up my day. Imagine that. This little child that God has given you for discipline, for training, for instruction. And you don't have time for that. 
Why? It's not my agenda today. You have messed up my agenda. This is what my agenda was for the day. And son, you've gotten in the way. And so now, my words express it. See, when there's no oneness of purpose in our relationships and in the church, sinners, imperfect, attaining, which means we're not arrived, we haven't gotten there, then we don't see life the way God wants us to see it. We don't see His purpose as He's conveyed it to us. We just see, that's an interruption, that's, that's messing up my day, she's a trouble to me, I wish she would stop that, just fix this. Because I'm living life, not in the oneness of the faith, but according to my agenda, and of course you're living to your agenda, that was the problem at Corinth. Every person was living according to their own agenda. And there was envy, strife, disunity. Now you can hear them talk without reading the book, can't you? Just on that basis. I was wanting to do the speaking gift today. I wanted to give a revelation. Hey, I wanted to give a psalm. I want to give a tongue. Hey, I'm supposed to interpret. Every person is living life according to their own agenda. So instead of oneness, there's division. See, division is always a heart issue in every relationship. It's not a mouth issue, right? I think I just need to learn to say the right thing here. That's good. That's not the problem. We know that, right? That's not the problem in my marriage. That's not the problem in my family or in my church life when I'm having conflict. The problem is much deeper than that. Right? Here's the next subordinate clause. The knowledge of the Son of God. Here's where our unity. Here's the agenda of the church. Here's the centrality of the church. This is what it's all about. The knowledge of Christ. Now this speaks to how we approach the Bible. Beloved, if we are approaching the Bible to find a principle, a command, a problem-solving technique, a systematic theology, how to fix something, we're approaching the Bible the wrong way. I do not say those things aren't found. We're looking for Christ the Son of the living God. Nothing will help my communication until I find Him. Nothing. All I do is try to work from the outside in. I just get my words right. Michael Allen, as my mom used to say to me, just stop saying that. Okay, okay. Why can't I stop? Because I'm going to the Bible to find something that I shouldn't be looking for first. This mature man... It's singular. It's not, it's not the individual Christian. It's the body that's coming to maturity in the oneness of this purpose and the oneness of the Son of God because we're all seeking an agenda of knowing Him. And oh, how that'll start to give shape in your words. Without this, I'm either a proud Pharisee that's just trying to say things to make myself look good and so you like me. Or I'm just a rebel that's going to tell you like it is. <laughs> and I'll put you in your place in a minute. Instead of a, a person that's being shaped by the knowledge of the Son of God. So that when I find a command, I find a principle, I find how I'm supposed to communicate, it begins on the inside with who He is. And then it gives shape on the outside. My problem is I so often start with the outside and try to work to the inside. And you know what? I'm just frustrated because I, I can't ever change. I keep saying the same things. Do you ever experience that? How did I do that again? What I just did yesterday. Maybe I'm looking for the wrong thing in the Bible. I need to find Christ. So We come to the oneness of the faith. This is the purpose. And the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's leading us to maturity. Maturity. A perfect man is, is a mature man. It's someone that's growing up into Christ. Verse 15. We're speaking the truth and love to grow up into Christ. So what we're bringing to our relationships is what? Christ. 
I can bring you a principle all day long. I can bring you a command. I can bring you seven highly successful communication steps to highly successful people. I probably just butchered that, but there's some book like that that I've mentioned before, right? But I could be serving my own purpose in that. When we see this purpose, then together we mature as we start bringing each other the knowledge of God. That's what He wants. That's what He's after. Oh, how I long to quit bringing to people my own knowledge and my own ways, but to bring them Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Now, there's hope here because this book mentions the Spirit multiple times. I can't remember the count. I think it's 10 to 20 times. God's saying, there's hope here. If you're convicted over your words, there's hope here. And it's found in Christ, the knowledge of who He is. So that's leading us in this purpose to become mature. Now what's the standard for maturity? Right? How do you measure maturity? Well, physically, when a child reaches a certain age, well, physically they're mature. We know that doesn't work mentally, does it? <laughs> I mean, 30-year-olds are not very mature in what they're doing. They're not responsible. They can't curb their passions, so they can't make wise decisions. So they're like little boys. What about spiritually? We measure Christian maturity not in the number of years you've been a Christian. We know that, don't we? We measure maturity. The measure, that's a standard. Stature, that's an age. According to capacity. Capacity. What on earth does that mean? Capacity is the ability to absorb, to hold something, to contain it. Like a gallon jug has the capacity of 164 ounces. I think that's right. You can correct me if that's wrong. When you reach the capacity, it's full. What is the measure of this capacity as a mature man, a mature person in Christ, a mature church? Where we're, This is the purpose. This is where we're going. Well, it's found in verse 17 of chapter 3 as I read there. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. The measure of the stature of the capacity of Christ, the fullness of God, being filled with the love of God. We mature, not by number of years, by our capacity to receive, to know, and to embrace the love of God in Christ Jesus as the Spirit fills us, Ephesians chapter 5. As we're filled with the Spirit of God and the knowledge of the Son of God, through the Word of God, we enlarge our capacity for love. Because we're tasked to speak the truth in what? Love. Love. So there's our process. There's our purpose. Now, let's spend the rest of our time on the pathway. Here's what they say is kind of the nuts and bolts. So the next two verses give us the negative of maturity and then the positive of how we become this mature body. Different times of being a Christian, different levels, different maturity as individuals, but together we're moving toward this spiritual maturity that just we never attain to in this life. We just keep pressing. We repeat the process, keep looking at the purpose, and now here's the pathway. That, to this end, verse 14, we henceforth be no more children, immature, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But, see here's, this is the pathway to maturity. We don't want to be that way. We want to be this way. Speaking the truth in love may grow up, may build up into Him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom? The whole body. All right, here's the pathway, speaking the truth in love. That's the primary pathway that we will keep attaining to more spiritual maturity, bodybuilding, 
This is how we get there. Now, let me just be first to say, I probably need more help in this category than anybody in this room. My words. That's a challenge, isn't it? Does anybody experience that challenge? But there's hope for us today that things can be better. Truth and love. What is that? Truth and love. These two are inseparable. If you have truth without love, it's misguided. It's distorted. See? Let me illustrate. See, as a husband, you could speak the truth to your wife and take her to Ephesians 5 and say, You know what, honey? I don't think you're very submissive. You need to submit to your headship, and that's me. Now tell me, is that true? Could be. Maybe she's having a terrible day. Maybe she's not anything close to submissive. But what was your motive? Had nothing to do with love. Well, I shouldn't say that. It had everything to do with your love. If she would just submit, your life would be better. It would be easier. It would be more comfortable. You could get on to work and not have to be concerned. So you take truth and you distort the purpose and you use it for the love of self. If I could just have a more peaceful life. And the problem is she won't submit. And then wives, you point out, do you know that the Bible says you're to love me like Christ loves the church? You haven't been doing that. Is that true? Probably is. Probably had a very bad week and you didn't even get close to it. You weren't even making any progress. It didn't even look like you were. She says, you need to love me like Christ loved the church. That's absolutely true. But is there love in it? Maybe. Maybe not. If that man would love me, do you know how much better my life would be? How much peace I would have? How much things would be better? You're just loving yourself, beloved. Oh, how tricky and deceitful. That we could actually take the truth of God and it be so separated from love that all I'm doing is loving me. That's dreadful. That's discouraging. But there's hope for sinners, isn't there? Paul said false teachers did that. He said when he came to Thessalonica, he did not use flattering words, nor a cloak of covetousness, nor did he seek glory from men, because that's what false teachers did. Did false teachers speak the truth? They did. Why? To gain something from the hearers. No love. True no love. Do you know the devil did that in Matthew chapter 4? He spoke the truth to Christ. It was absolutely true. There was not a taint of error in it. He quoted directly from the inspired scripture. But there was no love. He didn't love God. He couldn't love his neighbor. Because every word of truth that the devil spoke was designed to advance his own agenda and his own kingdom. How much of our conflict is rooted in any relationship you have? In an agenda that just wants a little rest, a little peace, a little less trouble. And so your words are aiming at the person in the relationship to get you what you want out of the relationship. So what about love without truth? That's when you... No, something true needs to be said to a person. They're on the wrong pathway in the church. But you define love differently. You say, well, if I really love them, I don't want to cause them to be so upset. I don't want them to be mad. That certainly could happen. If you ever had the best intentions and you come and as, as you think God would have you to and they, they blow up at you and, and they may leave the relationship. That's the worst they may be gone and never come back. So you define love as, I'm just not going to say anything. See, you divorced it from truth. So it's not really love. You weren't willing to say something true. Now here's the question, who were you loving? You were loving yourself. The reason is because I don't want them to be mad at me. I don't want them to be upset with me. I don't want them to leave me. All self-centered. No love for God, no genuine love for that person. Because that person is not growing up into Christ, 
They're going away from Christ, and your silence is going on record. Say, I'm willing to let that person just go on their way. Because I don't want to experience the tension that I know could possibly happen. There's a, a definition of love that's not true. It's not true love. What is true love? Well, we see it in Christ, don't we? Christ gave Himself as a sacrifice. True love is always self-sacrificing. That's what Christ did. He gave Himself. He gave Himself as an offering and a sacrifice. True love is for the good of others. Jesus came not for Himself. He came for you. So He sacrificed Himself for your highest good. So that's what love is always aiming at, the highest good. Also, love is not expecting you to do something because you were loved. Jesus said in Matthew 10, I came not to be ministered to, but to minister and give my life a ransom for many. I didn't come to get something from you. I don't expect anything from you. I don't expect your help. I don't expect you to do anything for me. In fact, you can't. I'm God. So love, according to the pattern of Christ, is going to go out to wife, out to husband, out to family, out to church, and expect absolutely nothing in return. And furthermore, love does not say, well, you know what? You don't really deserve my love to you. You didn't deserve Christ, right? God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, if, if God is waiting for you to be worthy of His love, you're a goner. And so, I mean, you're lost forever. So get that out of your head. Say, well, I... I would do something good for them, but they've gone so far, they just don't deserve it. That's not love. Because love ultimately is what? Love toward God and love to others. And what did Jesus say when He was delivered to the hour of crucifixion? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Nay. Glorify Your name. His whole aim was the love of God and the glory of God. And therefore, out of that love... Christ sacrificed Himself, gave Himself for your good, didn't expect anything in return, and He certainly didn't say, when they get deserving, I will love that person. See? That's what it means to speak truth in love. Now, here are two things that need to happen for us to grow in this, that I think Paul is saying. First, we always need to check the posture of our hearts. This is what verse 14 is telling us. In this growth and maturity, no more as children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. What is a wind of doctrine? It's any falsehood that we grasp that suggests to us that our hope, our fulfillment, our peace, our joy, our contentment is something horizontal. And not vertical. Beloved, you and I buy into falsehoods in some measure regularly. How often have you tried to attach your rest, your security, your expectation for fulfillment in something in creation? Something the government's going to do for you. Something your spouse is going to do for you. When that happens, what happens to our speech? It's not good. Is it? Because people in our relationships now are attacking the wind of doctrine that we've attached our good to. Right? So Paul speaks of a wind of doctrine as producing instability rather than stability of a mature person. Really, that marks maturity. Somebody's not tossed to and fro and carried about with every idea, every doctrine, every teaching, every wind. I would illustrate it like this. Parents, do you remember the first time you took your children into that ice cream place with 31 flavors? Not 10. Not 15. Not 29, but 31. We're going to be here a long time. Actually, that's more my problem than my children. You know, I'm, it's like, 31! So what do you do? You, you start getting samples. You start asking everybody, what are you getting? What are you, you going to get? And you're, just, you're going, 
tossed to and fro. You're, you're carried about. You're driven all the way up and down the case of ice cream with 31 flavors. Then you make your choice. And as you take the first bite, you look over at somebody else and they're eating something different. You're like, Ugh. Sorry. You're frustrated. You're disappointed. Now, there are two reasons for that. First of all, you know, as a parent, you just don't want to waste your money. You know, you got kids crying. I wanted that one. That's expensive. <clears throat> but the main reason you wanted to maximize the burst of experience on the taste buds that gives you such satisfaction. Oh, that was so good. Now, as you're eating your ice cream, disappointed, this mature man comes in the shop. He doesn't even look at the menu. He doesn't even get a sample. He acts as if he doesn't even know there's 31 choices. And he says, I'll have three scoops of vanilla. He sits down and he enjoys the flavor of the ice cream. What's this illustration conveying to us? The mature man has already decided where is contentment, where is peace, what satisfies him. And it's one flavor and one flavor alone. It's the knowledge of Christ Jesus the Lord. So he's not unstable and being drawn to this flavor and that flavor and that thing on social media and that thing on the internet and that thing on TV. That person can't fulfill the purpose because they're being carried, they're driven because they can't find any satisfaction. They don't know there's one flavor and one flavor alone. There's no choice here. It's it. It's the flavor of Christ. That person now is growing in stability. Now what do you think the difference is in the speech of those two people? <clears throat> The mature person, out of that contentment, can now speak truth. The immature person, because he's driven and tossed, he has no peace. He's not content. He cannot speak truth with love. Because he hasn't found the one flavor. Now that can ex explain us at any given moment in time, isn't it? See? When our words are not expressing, we have found the one flavor. We need to ask ourselves, what's the posture of my heart right now? Why am I so critical? Why am I so angry? Why am I so bitter? Why am I so resentful? Because we have to first be exposed to the wind of doctrine that we've been carried about with. What are we attaching our hope to? So that we can then turn and face the person in our relationship without tearing them down because they are attacking my wind of doctrine. And in my, my anxiety and my fear and my worry of which flavor, my agenda to find the one flavor, my agenda by taking in every wind of doctrine leaves me no time, no peace to speak. In a way that does what? Edifies the body of Christ. So we must consider first, what is the posture of our heart? Galatians speaks to this, doesn't it? Paul would say, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See? The lust of the flesh is to gratify the lust of the flesh. I'm, I'm trying, I'm looking, I'm searching for gratification. And what is that causing? I'm biting and devouring and consuming everyone in my relationship. Why? Because I'm seeking an occasion for my flesh. Paul says, But if you love one another, you fulfill the whole law. The law is, is captured in this one statement, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The love of your neighbor is the only visible expression. It's the only way to take the test if you really love God. That's why Paul puts the second as if it's the first. Because how do you know if you love God? If I said, do you love God? I would expect most people here anyway would say, I sure do. How's your love for your wife? Or your husband? 
or your children or your parents or your church members or your neighbor. That's the test that you found the flavor. It's also the test that I've gone back to looking for 30 other flavors in that moment. There's some, there's some posture of my heart that's causing me to bite and devour. If we do not discover that, rest assured, beloved, your words will never change. They won't. They can't. Because we're embracing a love in our hearts that's not the love of God. In that moment, right? That, that, that's our experience. We know about that when those words come. So we check the posture of our hearts again and again. That means after I said those things that were not in truth and love, I say, why did I say that? I ask, what was going in the heart? What wind of doctrine did I attach myself to? I'm not talking about a theology, but an idea, a thought, a preference to have it my way and my agenda so that I spoke in a way that was not loving for others, but it was loving for myself. See, we ask that question, exposes the heart, we confess it, we repent, right? If we never confess it, then you don't repent what you don't confess because you're not acknowledging it, right? All right. Second thing, not just the posture of the heart, but preparing to speak. Now, this is what Paul is going to drive at, I think, in the, the latter part of this chapter when he says, put off the old man, which is deceitful according to the former lust, that, that conversation that we used to have. And what was the old man conversation rooted in? 31 flavors. Gratification, where I can find it. And out of our mouths came words that demonstrated we were living according to gratification of our own agenda. But now, since you've learned Christ and been taught the truth of Christ, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So to prepare for speaking right, you've got to make a commitment to putting on the new man. That's the commitment I need to make. Right? I'm, I'm going to make effort in whatever this means in putting on the new man so that when I'm being renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him, Colossians 3.10, and what is that image? The knowledge of the Son of God. So as I'm approaching the Bible and I'm looking for Christ and I'm being renewed in knowledge, then what happens? I'm putting on Christ. And now who am I bringing to the relationship? Not the old man. Do you ever bring the old man to your, to your relationship? Oh. See? Then my, my aim is not to win the argument. The old man is so satisfied when I can put her down and show her I'm the supreme one here. I made the arguments. I was superb to my dad. I was able to argue to my mother and I put them down. And I feel good. That's just your lust, beloved. You ever do that? I wish I could say I hadn't. I wish I could say I didn't do it this past week. How could we ever have more victory over this old man? You've got to be renewed. There's no other way. See? You can, you know, fill your mouth with words. You can do like my beloved mother did one time years ago. I've told this story. She's probably going to listen to this story, so uh, she listens online. Mom, you probably remember this. I had said a word that she didn't think I should say. Now, it wasn't in the category of really bad words, but it was a word she didn't like. She took me straight into the bathroom, and she washed out my, my mouth with soap. Stick out your tongue. Now, my mother knows, she knew, that that wasn't going to do anything for the root of my problem, didn't she? She was trying to use a tactic that would, that would get me to think about saying that word and maybe why I was saying it. See, So we could wash our mouths out with soap all day long. But until you're renewed, you're going to keep saying the same thing for the same reason. Renewed. Put on Christ. How do you put on Christ? 
Well, in Ephesians 4, 2, Paul tells us. In Colossians, he connects these more closely with the new man. Paul separates them here. Those are, those are parallel texts. You know, Ephesians and Colossians have much of the same flow of thought. And so Paul says here in verse 2, "...with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace." We've got to be committed to put on Christ, which means we put these things on. We dress for success, as they say, right? When you go to an interview, you tell somebody, look, you, you shouldn't dress that way. You, know? you need to put on these clothes. You need to get ready ahead of time. You don't wait to practice the question and answer. You go ahead and do that now. The word put on means to clothe yourself with Christ. This is your commitment to speak the truth in love. And this comes before the tense conversation, right? Lowliness. One sense of their own littleness and weakness. See, we're not bringing our strength to this conversation. We're not bringing our ability to, to make this right and to fix this person. You can't fix anybody, beloved. Believe me, I've tried many times and it doesn't work. I, I've tried to fix myself. That doesn't even work. Lowliness. Do you bring to the relationship your sense of abandonment and weakness and absolute lowliness before the bigness of God? Think of it this way. You've been called to rescue someone that you love. And you found that a 2,000 pound car has pinned them in. And as you're driving to the scene, you know, you know, you bring no strength, no power, no ability. There's no way you could possibly lift that car off of that person. So on the way, you go and call your best friend. It just so happens he can lift 5,000 pounds. You bring him to the situation. You bring him to the rescue. You bring him to the relationship. You bring Christ. You can't bring Christ in your words until you get low, bankrupt, weak, in a way that God's strength now is coming through you in a way that's Gentle or meek. That's the second word. Meekness. Gentleness or mildness. Beloved, there's no clearer way that we communicate our belief in the sovereignty of God than when you can speak gently when somebody's yelling at you. You're resting in sovereignty there. See, we, we talk about these high theological doctrines of God is over everything. He's working all things after the counsel of His own will, universally, in everything He's bringing about, according to the Greek language, in a way that He's not the sinner and sinners are. And we love that. Now bring that to your relationship. And you realize, that child has interrupted my schedule because God is showing me something about His heart that He's put me there to help. Now I'm gentle. When you love your enemy that hates you, you're resting in the sovereignty of God. When you submit to your husband that doesn't show or act like he loves you a single bit that day, you're resting in the power and the sovereignty of God. That's just how practical it is, right? Meekness. Now remember, this is putting on, putting on, putting on. This is the pathway to get there. I can assure you, if you wait to that tense moment, old man is there. He's ready to go. He's ready to tell you his agenda, his way, and to get you back where you need to be, right? And then thirdly, there is long-suffering. Long-suffering means when you bring truth and love to one another in discipleship, in the church, in relationships... You know that just because you brought truth, you don't look at your watch and say, I give it about an hour and a harvest is about to come. There's going to be a harvest of fruit. No. The farmer waits for the precious fruit and has long patience for it. Why? Because when he drops the seed in the ground, he knows the harvest is not tomorrow. Now there's a difference in somebody who's rebellious and saying, I'm not listening to God's word, I won't do it. That somebody, okay, I know I need help. And yet they struggle the next day, maybe again. And they struggle the next day. See, when we have a sense of our lowliness and we're gentle, then it produces a long-suffering that's not demanding things be changed right now. And then lastly, forbearance is, is, means to stand up against, to hold oneself up 
against what? Provocation. Forbearance is patience under provocation. You may be being pelted with words. You may be being criticized by the person you love or a church member. Forbearance is able to hold there without retaliating. See? Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? We have to prepare for that. And God has given us everything we need to put on Christ. Nothing's missing. See? So we check the posture of our hearts in those tense moments between ourselves. And then we, we prepare. We confess, we repent, and we start putting them on. Just those four things. I challenge you to start, and myself today, just this week, put on those four things. Find that in Christ and ask the Holy Spirit to make you more like that as we attach our peace, our contentment to Him. And then out of that, we ask God to bless us to grow into a, a mature man from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint is supplying according to the effectual working of the measure of every part maketh increase of the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father,